Welcome to What Do You Know About? My name is Ash, and I will be your tour guide through the lesser-known stories of history. You can join us on your favorite podcast app, or come have a conversation on our Instagram at WDKA Podcast. But first, hold on tight, because we're about to go down a historical rabbit hole with today's episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, everyone. We have a really long episode for you today. Um, We are finally talking about Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker. And I got a little carried away with Mary Shelley. So, uh, yeah, we are in it for the long haul today. Um, Yeah, it's going to be a long one. Buckle up. I hope you're all ready for the ride. (laughs) I'm ready. Do we want to do our, like, both of our fun facts first? Or do you want to do your fun fact right before you go into talking about Bram? We can do them first. I'm down for that. All right. um, If just as really quick... Like, just to contextualize who we're talking about really quickly, Mary Shelley is the author of Frankenstein, as well as other works, and Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. So, that's why we're talking about them for spooky season, because they are, like, two of the classic monster stories, gothic Victorian, I think Victorian? Definitely gothic literature. Around there, I think. In that Victorian era-ish. Right, so... My fun fact for Mary Shelley is that uh, Mary Shelley and I have something in common, which is absolutely shitty handwriting. (laughs) Our penmanship is very bad. Uh, Her own husband wrote about it in a letter to a friend saying, quote, I wonder what makes Mary think her letters worth the trouble of opening, except indeed she conceives it a delight to decipher a difficult scrawl. (laughs) So you guys have the doctor's handwriting. Yes, well, I have, like, the hand. professor handwriting because I'm always trying to make it, like, the perfect lettering. Yeah. Okay. So he can he goes on to say, and this, is, this translates a little bit better in physical form, but he wrote this out. He said, she may as well have put as I will, my dear sir, question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, yours, etc. And I just, that's, that's how he wrote that. That's, that's just hilarious to me. Like, it's. It's, it's like, the kind of thing that I would send in a text. Like, it's, like, one of those, like, humans have always been like this. We just have a different platform now. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. All right, what's your fun fact about Bram Stoker? Okay, so it's not really fully about Bram, but it is about the genre that he wrote in. Um, mm-hmm. So my fun fact is that vampires have been in our fictional literary atmosphere since at least the early 1700s. There was a major craze that started in the 1720s, so kind of like 
a really early version of like our twilight phase i would say uh-huh um, that swept like the entire world most of the stories actually related to dead people rising from the grave in order to bring their spouse or loved one across to the the threshold of a to like a life of death with them so basically like i'm now dead so now i want you to be dead so you're with me <laughs> Wait, that's kind of romantic in a sort of gothic sort of way, though. I kind of, like that's kind of cute. Like it, it does kind of go well with the idea that we had, like, like when we talked about it with Gwen last week. That mm-hmm. there's like a lot of like the romantic horror, yeah, and stuff. Right? So this is kind of, I would say, like in that threshold. But yeah. there are a few stories that also included the ritual of drinking blood. Um, some quotes from these early tales actually made it into the famous one that I'm going to be talking a little bit about today, Dracula. So he literally took quotes from previous work and put them in his. Bro, I'm, okay, I'm interested to hear about his, like, writing process and what, how that went and everything. Mary Shelley had so much else going on in her life that, like, honestly, Frankenstein ended up being just kind of like an, like, an honorable mention. Yeah. In this script, I, like, there's still so much more I could talk about with her. Like, I could probably do another episode where we're just focused on Frankenstein and her writing process and, like, what people got from Frankenstein and public reaction and stuff. We'll, like, we'll talk about that later a little bit more. But, like, there was so much just from her life itself, let alone her writing, to talk about. Like, she had such a full life. So I guess that kind of brings us into it. Ashley, what do you know about Mary Shelley? Honestly, I basically just know that she wrote Frankenstein. And there was basically on a dare, I think. If I remember correctly, there was basically that, like, her, like, she was out with some other authors or something. And they mm-hmm. ended up daring each other to write, like, a scary story. And then that's how she got to Frankenstein. And I Pretty think, if much. I remember correctly, she was also kind of basically, like, a teenager almost when she did most of her writing but other than that i'm like i don't know she was 18 when she started writing frankenstein okay so yeah she was 18 when she started writing frankenstein so you're you've generally you've got the idea there's so much more so oh boy buckle buckle up and let's get into this so she was born in 1797 which means that uh in august which means that i was born like 200 years afterwards almost exactly uh <laughs> And she was born as Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin to anarchist philosopher William Godwin and feminist philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft. See, I think they I were, she, know a bit about... Is it her mom that I know even a bit about? I don't know. But I'm like, I think... Her I'm, mom was a very, like, public figure as well. She was yeah. a huge icon for the feminist movement, especially in early days, and actually has some connections to other people that we've already talked about. In this podcast. Yeah. So. I'm like, I recognize, I think I remember, I think I remember more about her mom than her. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest. So being born to these two, like, public figures and, like, societal thinkers, Mary was never going to fit into societal norm- norms. Her parents, like, it just, it was never going to happen. She was kind of destined away from it. Her birthright was more or less to come in and shake things up. Her feminist icon mother passed away, leaving her written works and her 11-day-old, uh, 11-day-old daughter behind. She died from childbed fever, which is what we now know as postpartum infection. Uh, she left, yeah, 
She left behind older children that she had outside of marriage, as well as her widower, William Godwin. Will wrote a memoir detailing her personal life, which unintentionally destroyed her reputation. William adored this woman, and he wrote an open and honest mem memoir about her life, but because it was honest about the relationship she had before marriage, the children she had outside of marriage, and her suicide attempts, society gave it a stamp of disapproval and treated it like a scandal. Ooh. Mary Shelley's mother had an interesting life herself. Uh, like I was saying, she was a feminist icon. She was a big name, and she had she went through a lot. Um, and she's probably honestly worth her own episode in the future. Yeah, no, definitely. So Mary had uh, her half sister with her, and she and the two of them were kind of left with their father. So William depended on his friends for support a lot during this time, and would take Mary's older half sister Fanny with him, leaving baby Mary at home with some family friends, Mrs. Revley and Mrs. Fenwick. Mrs. Revley and later Mrs. Gisborne told Mary stories about her mother uh, and raised her to love her dearly. Only knowing her through stories, she wrote about what a loving, intelligent, noble woman her mother was and how everyone who ever met her loved her for her charm and sense of justice. William declared that, this, uh, that his sorrow after her loss had no consolation, but months later he was writing letters proposing marriage which implied either the woman was a goddess, which is possible, or he was looking for a marriage of necessity since he had kids to take care of now and couldn't keep spending every moment of his day reading, hanging out with his friends and writing like he could when he was single and continued to do so when his, life was when his wife was alive, which is like not a lifestyle I disapprove of, but also like this was the love of your life. Maybe spend some time with her. I don't know. Maybe don't just leave her with the kids and then call it a day. I don't know. Yeah, um, but I mean, it is that time frame. Yeah. I mean, considering who they were and what their, like, ideals were, it just, it struck me as a little bit, like, odd that they fell so, like, hard into that societal norm. But they also weren't together for, like, a very long time before she passed away. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe, like... Yeah, maybe it was one of those lessons that you can't really learn until you go through it, I guess. I don't know, but he he talked like he couldn't get over her after she died. So, yeah, maybe that lesson was learned the hard way. He did seem to spend a lot more time with his next wife. Yeah, William tried to propose to the recently widowed Mrs. Revely, who was raising Mary. Um, and they had known each other for years at that point. And she supposedly had a bit of a crush on him before. But the loss was too fresh for her as her husband of 15 years had died less than a month ago. And so she turned him down. Don't really know what he was thinking with that one. <laughs> Unless he was thinking like, oh, Yingan, you're taking care of my child. Therefore, you'll want to marry me and make right? it official. Like, like <laughs> But like less than a month, dude. She was married for 15 years. Let her grieve. <sighs> I don't know. It was... Like, logically it made sense, but it took it did not take any kind of human emotion into account. And it's like, my guy. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, it logically makes sense, and then it makes sense for the time period as well, that, like, it was basically like, okay, here's how long you are allowed to grieve, and then yeah. you kind of need to get married again. Yeah, it's kind of a thing with him, though, where he's like, yeah, grieving, like, you get over it. It's kind of like, it's a downgrade to your character to be grieving. Like, who needs to grieve? Like, it's, I don't know. We see it come up again a little bit later. Yeah, so he took this rejection, and he went to Ireland for six weeks, leaving his daughters behind uh, in order to pull himself back together. When he came home, he found a widow had moved in next door. This was Mrs. Claremont, and they would be married in 1801. So he just likes the widows. 
So he's he's just here for the widows, pretty much, yeah. Like, hey, you've also had a loss. Let's hook up. <laughs> well, he had taken, like, because Mary Wollstonecraft, she wasn't a widow, but she had also been previously married. So, like, he had taken his sweet time to get married initially. And then afterwards, I think that just all the women at that point were, like, all, had already been married at least once. Like, he was, like, late to the game. You know okay. what I mean? After losing Mary, after losing his idealist wife, he had become much more cautious, reserve, uh, reserved, and began to care more about the status that so- social standing provides and was attracted to that in his new wife. Mary was not. To Mary, she was, quote, harsh, quick-tempered, and unsympathetic, and she caused a divide between father and daughter out of jealousy. Super-duper love that for stepmoms. Let's maybe not. So as long as her list of lovely things she had to say about her biological mother was, she had a longer list of bad experiences with her stepmother, and even William's friends supported her position as they had similar experiences with her. So this woman just did not fit in. They stayed married for, like, the rest of their life, as far as I could tell, but, like, they they, they did not get along. It's like a Cinderella kind of story. Kind of, kind of yeah. Except her dad doesn't die. Well, he does, just not... Early on. (laughs) (laughs) Way later. Uh, Okay, so money became tight, and at the advice of his second wife, William opened up a publishing house as a side hustle to his writing. It was called Baldwin's Fables. They published stories for children, and the couple ran it together and did it well, so much so that they moved out of Mary's childhood home, the home that belonged to her biological mother, which would not have been an easy experience for her. Nope. Mary's stepmother prioritized her own children's education, getting them into good schools and good tutors, and Mary and her older sister Fanny were always given second best to them. So despite their mother writing theories about education and developing an entirely new educational system and, like, emphasizing the potential that women had if they were given the same education, op- educational opportunities that a boy was, despite all of that, William did not follow her educational system and, like, the curriculum that she had kind of laid out, uh, saying that he remarried in part because he didn't think he would be a good teacher and explaining that the stepmother wasn't a follower of the biological mothers and therefore did not raise them the way that she would have. I mean, it makes sense. Like, it does, but also at the same time, that's kind of heartbreaking. Like, well, yeah. That's not what Mary Wollstonecraft would have wanted for her kids, right? So to just completely ignore that is just like, aw. No, totally, but I'm like, it like it makes sense while it's still heartbreaking. Like, it's sad. Like, it's, it's situationally, yeah, it makes sense, but it's still sad. So in my opinion, it's definitely not the way that Mary Wollstonecraft would have wanted, which is just... Like, it's just frustrating to me to think about on her behalf that she had all these theories about how girls could be raised, and then she had daughters, and they weren't raised that way. And yeah. that's, like, I I feel for that. Uh, even without a formal education, though, they did have access to their father's library, some of his tutoring, and the intellectuals that would come visit him on occasion, including one previously discussed Aaron Burr. Yay! <laughs> So remember I mentioned in the Theodosia episode that the, uh, that Burr raised Theodosia Jr. to the standards set by Mary Wollstonecraft on egalitarian child rearing? Yeah. So he even had a copy. Uh, they were actually quite close. He even had a copy of a portrait of Mary while she was pregnant with Mary Jr. Uh, William said that his copy was more accurate than the original. So oh, the wow. copy... 
yeah, so the copy that Aaron Burr had was apparently a very, very accurate portrait of uh, Mary's mother. Uh, the original was painted just months before she passed away, while the copy was painted some seven years later. William recognized that he didn't raise his daughters to marry seniors' standards, but you better believe Aaron Burr did. So just to contextualize this even more, uh, yeah, I got I got a little derailed here, I'm not going to lie, because, yeah, it was just, it was really neat that Aaron Burr followed, like, the educational theory that Mary did. So even if Mary's own daughters didn't benefit from, like, her idealism and her work, like, someone else did and like yeah. that was that was neat to see and then also this is interesting thing and kind of creepy uh so yeah so theodosia was 15 years old and mary jr was born and theodosia died december of 1812 so that means that mary was 15 years old and theodosia was lost at sea okay that's just crazy right so for 15 years they were both on the same planet at the same time with theodosia proving mary's mother right while mary didn't receive nearly to the same extent the benefit of her own mother's teachings both didn't have their like grew up more or less without their biological mothers you know theodosia lost her mom when she was like 10 10 12 yeah uh, and then both had fathers who th saw themselves as revolutionaries and they had two extremely different outcomes based almost exclusively on circumstance. And yeah, I did not go into the script thinking I'd find this much crossover between these two historical badasses. No, but that's kind of cool though. Right? It's like, I know Theodosia never left America, but like part of me, like I really wish that they had met and then like had a chance to talk and stuff, right? Yeah, especially, like, that Theodosia got to grow up the way that Mary should have grown up. So yeah. that Mary could have seen, like, okay, this is what I could have had. This, yeah, this is what I could have been. Like, she's still, like, she already is kind of counted as a literary, like, genius. Like, she did a lot for the horror genre. Like, a lot, a lot. And that's not to be, like, discounted just because she didn't have the most educational upbringing. But think about how much more she could have been and how much more she could have done if she'd had that opportunity, right? Like, if her baseline was already, like, prodigy tier, then, like, how much more could it have been if more effort was put into her education? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, my obsession with finding all the connections between historical figures aside, Mary was growing up and growing beautiful. She was described as medium of height, but so slender and willowy in figure as to appear tall, with remarkably fair skin and delicate features, a wide, calm bow and, uh, or sorry, a wide, calm brow and light waving hair. She had gray eyes, and if you know anyone with gray eyes, you know they change color with the person's emotions, and Mary's were fierce and captivating. This is all, all yeah, descriptive of her. Around this time, William writes a description of both his daughters, saying the oldest is the quieter of the two, uh, more modest, though still disposed to exercise her own thoughts and follow her own judgment, but he writes one of the best descriptions of Mary. Mary, my daughter, is the reverse of her in many particulars she is singularly bold somewhat imperious and active of mind her desire of knowledge is great and her perseverance in everything she undertakes almost invincible i want to be invincible mm -hmm. what a cool description of her character yeah totally so this is around the time that mary would take uh the books that her stepmother disapproved of and go and read them sitting next to her biological mother's grave so yeah, so I'd say that his description of her was pretty accurate, even though William was writing it like they were closer than they were at this point. It was also around this time, at the age of 15, that we introduced to the cast one Percy Shelley, 
who would form so much of her late teens and adult life. So Percy was five years older than Mary, so she was 15 and he was 20 when they met. Percy was the oldest of seven children, five of whom were girls. He was a writer and a poet with a similar disregard for societal expectations that Mary father, uh, Mary's father once had. He was educated and went to Oxford at 18, but he was expelled for spreading pamphlets defending atheism around the campus and getting caught with <laughs> caught at doing it. So he met a girl named Harriet Westbrook, and even though they, he didn't believe in marriage, they eloped after she told him about her family troubles in order to pull her out of them. Cut off from his own family and hers, the couple moved to London entirely broke. Her Aww. sister joined them, which really only made things worse. He was married when he met Mary in 1812, though they wouldn't have a real ceremony until much later. Yeah, so they eloped. Uh, he was like kind of technically married uh, when he met Mary in 1812, though they wouldn't have a real ceremony until two years later. It made their marriage legitimate but not healthier, and it wasn't long before they separated and Harriet moved back to her father's house. So Percy was a fan of William's political works and was one of the many young men that William mentored on the subject through his letters. And this back and forth began in 1811 and they met in person finally in 1812. Percy would have met Mary at that time too, but showed no interest in her. She was a child um, and uh, they wouldn't meet again until 1814. And when they did, Percy was smitten by her. Um, the time difference in between seeing that she had grown up so much and kind of grown so much more into adulthood, he was kind of taken aback by her. He'd become a constant guest in her father's house and she had returned from another trip to Scotland, which she had to do relatively often since she was, quote, a delicate child uh, and often got sick due to the temperament of the weather. Uh, and London's winters especially were uh, very hard on her. I read this, I didn't know, I don't know that Scotland's you know, much better. I feel like it's still just as rainy and like grim and gray as England during the winter, but apparently it helped. So, and the space from her stepmother can hurt her. So, you know, it, was it might also just did. be that the break from the family was nice. Like, okay, I'll just go have my little vacation. Bye. The it's break totally from the family because and... I can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> the break from the family and like the London city air, uh, like she would have had fresher air out in Scotland, I guess. But yeah. yeah, it's still just as rainy and wet and humid. So I don't know. But yeah, definitely the break from her stepmother couldn't like couldn't hurt. Well, it depends on where she went in Scotland too. Like if she was more on like the coast it probably was just in general cleaner air mm. and then that seawater and stuff, right? Fair enough. Clearly, I've never been to Europe, so I don't actually know firsthand what any of it's like. Neither have I, but I just know from what I've seen and read. <laughs> Fair enough. So yeah, it was soon after Percy and Mary met that uh, Percy and Harriet separated. They weren't divorced yet, but they knew it would, uh, but they knew it would happen eventually, or so they thought. Um, it was practically love at sight, first sight for Percy and Mary when they were reintroduced in 1814, and they started openly swooning over each other soon after. William disapproved because Percy was still married and tried to fix things between Percy and Harriet, uh, telling Percy that he needed to visit the house less and dissuading Mary from seeing Percy. Mary and Percy both claimed to agree, but Percy just so happened to find her one day reading next to her mother's grave, as she was so often did, and he just cracked and poured out his whole life story to her. Mary was moved by this, and they promised themselves to each other in marriage. 
Legend says that he took her virginity on the grave, but good luck finding an academic source that will confirm this because I cannot, and Snope says that we'll never know for sure. I was gonna say, because I'm like, that would... I mean, it is a very pop- it's a very popular legend about her. <laughs> I could see it being a really good legend because of her writing mm-hmm. and stuff, right? So then that would kind of maybe boost up that sale for that. But then society-wise, it I could see why they would cover it up if it was true. See, this is the thing. This is the thing we'll never know because society at the time absolutely never would have just outright said that. And so it's just kind of lost to history, but also... It- some of the letters that they wrote and some of the diary entries, like, implications are made, but, like, nothing is confirmed. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But the goths that love Mary, like, really love this story, so I feel like we can just let them have that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it doesn't impact much. Yeah, so Percy and Mary decided that the only way that they can be together, uh, without getting in trouble from Mr. Godwin, was for them to run away together. So they did, uh, with, surprisingly enough, Mary's stepsister Jane tagging along. Uh, Mrs. Godwin realized that they left and followed them in order to convince Jane to stay behind. She didn't care about the others, but she followed them to try to get her daughter to stay behind. She did not succeed. They, you know, she went with them anyway. But she had, she could not have cared less what Mary was up to, but she wanted her kid to stay behind. Makes sense. It's just, yeah, very telling of the dynamic. But yeah, she wasn't successful, and the trio were on their way. Trio were on their way to Dover and then to Paris. They walked through France with the donkey to carry their things, and Mary, since uh, or when she was feeling too weak to continue, eventually they sold the donkey to buy a stronger mule, and then sold the mule for a cart and hired a man with the mule to pull them. Only for the man and the mule to leave them behind while they slept. They did make it to Switzerland only to discover that they had just enough money to take them back to England. Okay. And so they, and so their travels were kind of cut off at that point. They joined a group of other travelers and journeyed back to England by boat. They chose a quick but dangerous route on the river, but all made it back to England in one piece. Apparently it was quite the adventure and she wrote about it in like, I like it's, it can kind of be described as like a travel block of the day where it's just like, an article that's just about the travels during this trip. Okay. And that was, I believe, her first published piece. Well, I mean, it was an interesting trip. Yeah. <laughs> like, a lot happened. A lot happened. A lot Especially happened. Especially to those poor donkeys and mules. <laughs> there was quite a bit. It was a, it was a bit of a strange honeymoon um, to be the married couple and then also the stepsister tanging along because they just couldn't make her stay behind. Yeah. So Mary's father was very upset with them running off together, so much so that even when they came back to England, we don't have any recorded communication between father and daughter for months. Like, cut her off kind of upset. I don't know if she was that upset by the fact that they got cut off, though. (laughs) I don't think she was terribly bothered by it. Like, at at this point, I think later they developed a closer relationship, but at this point, I don't think that she could have cared that. Yeah. Like... Yeah, so Mary and Percy were happy, though. Completely broke, cut off from family on every side, but happy. Uh, They studied together, wrote together, dodged debt collectors together, worked together, read together, uh, always sharing a book as well, which is super cute. Like, literally the same book. Like, they didn't have two copies of the same book. They had the same book, and they were reading it together and writing notes about it together. Like, that is sweet. It's adorable. (laughs) I want that kind of relationship. Right? Instead, we married gamers, or chose gamers. 
You're on your way to marry. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm almost there. You're almost there. Beyonce. Just one more step. <laughs> but Simba and I share books. <laughs> <laughs> but does Simba write notes about, about the books with you? No, she tries to eat the books. <laughs> if, it's, <laughs> if the book is taking over her attention of the, of the whole situation, then she tries to eat it. <laughs> See, Ash will just, like, try to lay down on top of the book or, like, get in between the book and my face. <sighs> Well, Simba just tries to chew the corners of it. Like, look, if you're not going to pay attention to me, I will do this. Yeah, Fluff does that too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, Percy was a poet uh, and had been writing this entire time. And Mary was very much his muse. So, he was writing, like, so much at this point and a lot about her. Uh, Percy was still officially married to Harriet. So, he and Mary couldn't get legally married. Um, but she didn't ever seem to object to Percy and Mary eloping, and Mary didn't seem to object to Percy and Harriet remaining friends with Percy, even reserving a portion of his inheritance from his grandfather um, for Harriet in order to fulfill his duties as a husband for her, even though Harriet was still living with her father. They almost have like a throuple situation going on, but Harriet seemed to be a platonic third wheel, despite being the one officially married to Percy and being pregnant by him. Yeah. So... Uh, Percy even wanted Harriet to consider his home with Mary as her own, but his lawyers apparently advised against it, and it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Gotta have the facade that you're still married to the other woman. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, in the first year of their official marriage, a lot happened. Harriet gave birth to Percy's son while Mary was pregnant with his daughter, for one thing. Mary was wholly dedicated to Percy, despite theoretically agreeing with the idea of free love, which was a social movement that all forms of love are the business of the people involved and, like, the government and, like, general society shouldn't be involved. But rumor had had it that he was he was actually acting on it, and that kind of agitated her. They, they both spent a lot of time unwell and had to spend a lot of time in fresher air than London's in order to stay healthy, so they were often, like, out away from home. Uh, Mary gave birth to their first child together, a baby girl born two months premature. So, warning for the mothers in the crowd, this is the 1800s, so we know that these kids don't have great odds. Um, but this one especially might be a bit anxiety-inducing, so as per usual, time skips are in the notes. And as always, take care of yourself first. Okay. So, Mary woke up to check on her baby girl in the middle of the night. Again, two months premature. Uh, only days old and she said that she thought her daughter was sleeping so heavily it was like she wasn't moving it wasn't until morning light when she discovered that her daughter had actually already passed away when she had checked on her and it wasn't that she was sleeping it was just that she was already gone oh the poor thing yeah like both of them (laughs) percy was absolutely beside himself and mary had to write to her friend thomas jefferson hoggs uh, to accompany her because he would be more calm about the situation and Percy couldn't comfort her uh, while he was like this. So this tragedy left Mary in a bout of depression. We don't know a lot about Mary's life between spring of 1815 and summer 1816 because a lot of information we have about her comes from letters and journals and her journals from this period were lost. My sources all started kind of disagreeing and like getting confusing with dates and years here. Um, so I did my best, but we know for sure that around this time, like after, yeah, this period. So like, I think it was only months later, she was pregnant with her next child, which is an, an emotional roller coaster to say the least. Um, so yeah, 
months later, she was pregnant again. And then uh, a while later, she gave birth to a son uh, named William after her father. Uh, Mary's half-sister, Fanny, died by suicide sometime in this period, as did Percy's other wife, uh, Harriet Shelley. And Mary and Percy spent an evening reading ghost stories with their friends. Um, This all not necessarily in this order. Yeah. So Lord Byron, a friend of theirs, uh, thought it would be great fun to have a competition to see who could write the best ghost story. Mary took that and absolutely ran with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she'd been writing ghost stories since she was a child. Unfortunately, we don't have them. They've been kind of lost to time. Um, but as a 19-year-old mother who'd already lost her first child, she'd been through enough life experience that this was going to be nothing like what she'd written before. So while the men agreed and immediately went into a serious discussion on the principles of life, Mary set to work thinking about what kind of story could, quote, rival those which had excited us to this task. Thankfully for us, she meticulously journaled her entire writing process. So each character, each theme, each word was intentionally chosen and intentionally placed in this story. And does that ever show? It made its place in history because of her timeless yet revolutionary writing. You may have heard of it. She called it Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Yay! (laughs) So she was 18 when she started writing it. But during the period that she was writing it, this is like shortly after that, just after that phase where we didn't really know what was going on. Now we know a bunch of what was going on and there was a lot. So while she was writing it, Mary lost her stepsister uh, and Percy lost his wife in the previously mentioned suicides, both uh, both deaths affecting the couple deeply. Percy was often traveling, leaving Mary to care for their son alone. They were finally officially married in December of 1816, and her stepsister had a child with Lord Byron, which Mary ended up willingly caring for until 1818 when Lord Byron requested the child to be sent to him. Mary was sad to see her go, but she knew she'd be better off with the father than the mother. Apparently, uh, the stepsister, this is Jane, the one that tagged along on the... um, on the honeymoon apparently she had quite a temper uh like a real bad temper so mary totally understood that the child needed to not stay with the mother and needed to follow byron to italy so percy's poetry had started getting popularity at this point but they weren't exactly swimming in wealth so she was dealing with a lot and largely alone while trying to write her first short story but then with percy's encouragement it became a novel uh so it was eventually published Anonymously, in January of 1818, Percy wrote the prologue and it was dedicated to William Godwin. So reviewers and readers took guesses at who actually wrote the book and it ended up being credited to Percy until Mary later came out as the author. Yeah, I think, yeah, I remember that part. So this debate of authorship somehow continued for centuries and critics and later historians argued forever that he must have at least co-authored it. There's positively no way an 18 or 19 year old girl could have possibly written a a literary masterpiece. No, of course not. It's an eye roll. It makes me so upset. (laughs) We have the journals Percy used to edit her manuscripts and it's obvious that all he did was edit it. Like, we don't give editors today 50-50 credit to modern authors, so why would we make an exception in this case? Yeah. Yeah, so Mary didn't have much time to enjoy her publishing success. A few months later, Mary Shelley gave birth to her third child and another girl named Clara. So Mary and Percy also fought for the custody of Percy's other two children from his deceased wife, but his ex-father-in-law prevented that from happening on the grounds that their ideologies would be dangerous to the children. 
and they were sent to be raised by the clergy, with Percy being ordered to pay child support of 200 pounds a year. Wow. Yeah. So with this um, failed attempt behind them, they decided to go to Italy and stay after traveling with Byron's child to drop her off with them. Percy never saw England again. So Mary really liked their place in Italy. It had a beautiful garden. They were making ends meet. Percy still did have to travel on occasion, though he'd write letters to Mary longing for her to join him. At one point, it's really cute. Uh, he wrote that he planned her trip out completely saying, I have done for the best uh, and my own beloved Mary, you must come and scold me if I have done wrong and kiss me if I have done right, for I am sure I do not know which and only the event can show. Oh, that's so sweet. Right? So he's like, I planned this whole thing for you. You're going to have to come and tell me if I messed up or you have to come and tell me I did great. Either way, I need you. I need you. I need you here with me right now. Aww. It's really cute. Uh, he also wrote in the same one, uh, in the same letter, kiss the blue-eyed darlings for me, referring to their children, and do not let William forget me. Clara cannot recollect me. Oh. Because his kids were so young. Mary did respond by joining him in Venice. Uh, while they were there, ooh, this gets sad again. Sorry. While they were there, Clara got heat stroke and passed away. No. Um, not little yeah, Clara. Leave, I know. Leaving William as their only surviving child. Uh, Mary missed the company of her friends uh, as they spent a lot of time alone there, so they moved to Rome only to discover that tragedy seemed to follow, follow them. William became sick with malaria, and it wasn't long before he passed away as well. They do not have good luck with children. They really don't. They really, really don't. Tragedy really follows them around. So at this point, Mary had a child buried in London, one in Venice, and one in Rome. So... Which is, like, honestly, to me, that just makes it feel even worse. Like, they're nomads. They're totally nomads. They've been traveling together their entire relationship. I get that. But, like, your whole, like, they're they're all in different places. Like, you can't even go to just one cemetery to visit them. And it's just, they're all, they're just, they're all, yeah. it's just sad. It would make the grieving process so much more difficult. Oh, yeah. And then, like, the process of being able to go see them later on. Like, how she would go sit by her mom and stuff. Like. Yeah, she can't do that anymore. No. It'd be such a trip. Yeah. So her father, she wrote a letter to her father, like telling him the news about her children passing away. And he responded to her letter, basically telling her to man up that being depressed over it was a downgrade to her character and that enough else in her life was going well that she should be depressed over losing a two-year-old child, which is fucking heartless. Yeah. I don't like this guy. Yeah, like, her dad had some strange priorities. Like, I don't, like, ever, sometimes it's like, all right, you seem like a chill dude. And then other times, it's like, okay, humans are allowed to have emotions. Like, that's an okay thing to do. And he, like, describes her as being like, oh, I thought you were supposed to be better than the stature. Like, you were supposed to be the best among women. Now you're depressed? Ew, you have emotions? Ew. Mm. Like, you're just like other women if you're depressed over your child dying. Like, yes. Yes, I am. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> Like, I freaking carried this child for nine months, had to go through the pain of giving birth right? to it, took care of it, Please, and now it's sir. gone. <laughs> Excuse me, sir, you didn't raise your own children. You don't get to say whether or not I should be sad about losing mine when I'm the one who had to put in all the work. No. Yeah. So, yeah, it's oof. <laughs> gross. So at the end of the summer, they moved to Florence, and a few months later, Mary gave birth to another son named after his father, Percy. Spoiler alert, this one survives. So don't worry about him. He's good. 
he was born healthy and he grew up healthy. Mary's depression finally started to subside a bit and they decided to move to Pisa uh, and where the whole family could be happy and healthy. And they had friends nearby and Percy's career was stabilizing. So they decided to stay there a while before they did, you know, eventually move again, being the nomads that they were. Uh, Mary was also writing and getting published again, usually under a pen name or anonymously, with Shelley connecting her to his publisher and making requests to them on her behalf. So this is when Mary becomes close friends with Jane Williams, and they would spend hours together boating out on the Arno River. In fact, their whole circle of friends was growing at this point, so she felt much less alone. Skip ahead a few years of travel to 1822. They just bounced back and forth between a bunch of different cities for a while. Uh, Percy went for a boat ride with Jane Williams' husband, but a storm hit and they went down with the ship. Ooh. No pirates this time, as far as I know. But are you sure about that? Yes, because <laughs> they actually found the bodies this time. Okay. So they'd only sailed it a little way from shore when a storm rolled in, and 20 minutes later, it completely cleared and the boat was gone. That's so, like... So like Quick. out of so they go out they go out to shore, out of nowhere this storm suddenly comes rages for twenty minutes disappears and they're gone, like it happened that fast that's like crazy. So for days they didn't know if they were okay if they were alive if they made it out if they were fine, until one of their friends who was searching for evidence of what happened found their bodies had washed up on the beach and they were able to identify them by the clothes that they were wearing and the book of poems in Percy's pocket. Ooh. Right? So Mary and Jane were left to console each other, but they weren't alone. Their circle of friends supported them through this loss, helping with the funeral, and after lighting the funeral pyre because they wanted to be cremated, um, one of the friends was even so dedicated that, quote, when the body was half consumed with his own hand, snatched the heart from the burning mass, referring to the heart of Percy as a means of fulfilling his final wishes. The heart didn't burn, which is interesting. Theory is that it was because it had calcified um, when he had a bout of tuberculosis okay. years before. Yeah. And so it's, so what we have left then is this kind of like perfectly preserved heart that once the body was um, like cremated was kind of like left over. Weird. Right. I'm betting you, though, so, the friend had his hand burned. <laughs> yeah, so he, like, he, you know, grabbed a quick whatever. He was fine enough. It didn't mention anything about him hurting himself. But yeah, so poor Mary, after going through all this, suffered a miscarriage not very long after, which makes sense. The stress of losing your husband would not be good for your baby. Yeah. She said that not only, oh, yeah, spooky fact. She said that not only Percy, but also their friend Mrs. Mason had dreams shortly before his death in which he had died or drowned. Mrs. Mason's happened the day that the ship disappeared, in which uh, Percy approached her looking sickly and pale and told her that he would never eat again. Ooh, it's weird. Right? As far as Percy's heart, it stayed with Mary to be laid to rest in Rome next to his son. Except that she didn't actually do that. She kept it. She was supposed to. She was supposed to lay it to rest in Rome with his with his son, but she 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 chose not to. Uh, after she died, it was found in a drawer of her desk, wrapped in a piece of silk, with one of his last poems folded around it. Yeah, and like I mentioned before, it was perfectly preserved theoretically. I don't know exactly how that happened. Some people suggest that it was maybe a calcified bit of something. An early theory was that it was actually his liver and it had, it had just been like so 
um, kind of swamped with salt water that that's why it went and burn. Other people suggested it was maybe a kidney. Like nobody like. But no matter really what, she knows. had like a piece of like one of his organs in a drawer. A piece of one of his organs was sitting in a drawer, though. Yeah, yeah. For like, and she like brought it with her around because she moved around after this as well. So she brought it with her everywhere for like the rest of her life. Yeah. I mean, yes, she I did do that. I personally say queen. good on you, but. <laughs> A goth queen. Like, I don't know what else. Like, this is just Mary Shelley. Like, this is just who she is, right? Well, I mean, like, I would do it. I care. I bring my cat's ashes around. My, like, my old cat's ashes around everywhere I go. Like, when I'm moving places and stuff. Like, he has, like, a little altar and everything. That I would do. Like, if I had, like, a piece of it that can actually like, calcify a piece of him, great! <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, like, that far off from what was, like, standard practice back then. Like, people used to, like, keep locks of people's hair after they passed away and stuff as well, right? So, like, there were even some cultures, not, like ones that they were a part of necessarily, but there were some cultures where they would like dig up the bodies of people who had passed away of loved ones and would dance with them like once a year or something. It was yeah. like, um, kind of like at the day of the dead situation, but in another area of the world. So there's, I can't remember where exactly. There is an area of note, the but... world that they like do like a mummification kind of a thing with, mm-hmm. um, and then every so, and then like every certain number of years, the family gets together, you dig them up and then you um, unwrap them completely. They're out for the family to visit and stuff like that for a while. And then they are like cleaned and rewrapped and everything. And like that it happened, like it's like a whole ritual kind of a thing, right? That you have like, I think it's like every like five years or something, you have like a dinner and stuff with your love like your dead loved ones because they're basically mummified and so they still look very like similar to how they that's crazy like that's that's so interesting and like you if you grew up with that it would be totally normal right like it's just like a cultural thing it's just you just yeah it's just how it is so like piece of a calcified heart like maybe not the strangest thing humans have ever done (laughs) yeah but very on brand for a goth queen yeah yeah, alongside uh, the piece of heart, they also found in that same drawer um, locks of hair from her other children, which, like I said, was common practice, um, a bit of Percy's ashes, and a workbook that they worked together on when he was still alive. So just like a little a little journal with notes that they both contributed to. That's cute. Mm-hmm. Your sentimental drawer, clearly. Yeah, so after going through all of this loss, all of this tragedy, uh, Mary moved back to England with her son and they lived there for the rest of her life. Now as a widow, she had to work hard to support herself and her son with only the money that she made as an author for a while. Percy's father did give her an allowance eventually, but on the condition that she keep the Shelley name out of print. And so she decided she had no choice but to publish every title under a pen name and the biography that she wanted to write about her husband was left unwritten for years. That sucks. Yeah. So for 20 years, she lived like this, editing and releasing Percy's remaining poems posthumously, as well as writing just to stay afloat. She moved north to London to be near Jane Jane Williams. Some historians speculate about their relationship, suggesting it may have been a little more than a friendship based on the way that Mary wrote about Jane, but it's impossible to know for sure. And Jane also apparently told Mary that Percy loved her more than he loved Mary because Mary wasn't a great wife. So like... Who really knows if it was reciprocated or, like, what was going on there? That's weird. 
Yeah, it's they they did they seem to be very very close, but it may have been a one-sided crush. We don't really totally know. She did start writing a memoir about Percy, knowing that she wasn't going to be able to publish it unless her father-in-law changed his mind or passed away. Other men, other writers pursued her, but she turned them all down, saying to one of them that after being married to a genius, she could only marry another, which is kind of savage. <laughs> I was going to say, like, she just handed it to these authors on a platter, like, you might be a good author, <laughs> But you're not a genius, so no. (laughs) I was married to a genius. I would only ever be able to be married to a genius again after that experience. And just, you don't meet my criteria. Like, she's saying it flat out. Like, I (laughs) But somehow that response was completely accepted. Like, they were like, yeah, okay, seems legit. And we're just, like, fine with it. So his, I mean, his works were very popular at this point. So it might have been like, you know what? Fair. Like, yeah. (laughs) So in 1827, she obtained, uh, there's a story that she obtained false passports for a couple of her friends, Isabel Robinson and Mary Diana Dodds, who wrote as David Lindsay and went by Walter Sholto Douglas privately. So in order for them to move to France as wife and husband, respectively, which, yeah, I, this is another popular story about hers, uh, or another popular story about her from what I could find, it seems legit. She also wrote so many titles during this time. Not all of them novels, but just a lot. Just, just a lot. Just a, just writing constantly, all the time. Yeah. Um, my mom had picked up a book of short stories that's like um, mm-hmm. women horror writers. And one of her short stories is in there. And I'm like, hey! <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what the title of it was? I can't remember. Okay. Because she wrote... Her two kind of most notable titles were Frankenstein and The Last Man, in which she basically writes about the experience of being lonely. And she spent a lot of her time, like, a lot of her life kind of feeling that way, especially yeah, when first she was traveling. Man. Yeah, it wasn't The Last Man. I would go yeah. get up and go find it in the library, but the cat is basically <laughs> on my hip, so. <laughs> no, that's fair. It is illegal to move when the cat is cuddling you. Exactly. <laughs> and especially now that she's not only like, trying to hit my computer or meow loudly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Mary Dodds, the debate whether or not she was a lesbian or whether she was trans, like whether she was dressing up as a man in order to get away with being married to a woman or if she was like genuinely saw herself that way. Yeah. I've, I've kind of saw argu- arguments for both. But yeah, Mary seems supportive. Again, supporter of free love. So yeah. In 1836, after her father passed away, she intended to write a biography about his life, uh, which was his final wish, but she never ended up finishing it. In 1837, she was approached by an editor asking for a collection of Percy's works. As he'd become very well-known by that point, she agreed. Uh, Percy's father still didn't want a biography included, so Mary agreed to his request and then went and added an extensive biographical notes about the poems rather than technically adding a biography. She also spent her time aiding other women financially whenever she could. She never remarried, and her romantic life has been a big source of speculation, no doubt in part to her free love philosophy. Yeah. She did get to travel with her son a little bit as well. They were kind of just financially well off enough to be able to do that. But she she wasn't exactly rich. (laughs) She did make sure that her son was educated, though he didn't seem to be like a uh, a prodigy like his parents were. And he still managed to... Sentences, Kate, they have structures for a reason. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
She made sure her son was educated, though he didn't seem to be a prodigy like his parents, he still managed to go to Trinity College in Cambridge. In 1844, Percy's father finally passed away and she and her son inherited part of the estate, only to be blackmailed by three separate people. So they finally get some money and immediately people come out of the wordworks like, hey, I have this letter and I'll release it if you don't pay me. Hey, I have this work and I'll release it if you don't pay me. Hey, I'm gonna write an unflattering biography about your dead husband, pay me and I won't. That last one she didn't actually pay up for and it was fine. Um, <laughs> so. Percy Jr. got married in 1848. His new wife got along with Mary, but in 1851, the headaches and bouts of paralysis that Mary had been suffering since 1838, so for like 10 years, nope, longer, for like 13 years, proved to be indicators of something much more dangerous. Her doctor suspected it was a brain tumor, but with no way to investigate it or treat it without killing her, the tumor ran its course and took her life. Percy Jr. and his wife Jane preserved the legacy of his famous parents, building a shrine to them in their home and relocating the graves of Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin to Dorset, where they could be laid to rest together. Percy Shelley's heart was eventually buried with Percy Jr. after he lived a long and seemingly happy life. Mm. So, yeah. So in life, she was respected well enough as a career author. After her death for years, she was seen as the wife of Percy Shelley. Uh, recently, she's had a bit of a revival and people are realizing that she wrote more than just Frankenstein, uh, that her letters and even she herself are significant to history in more ways than anyone has been admitting for a long time. Um, I know this is a long script, longest one yet for me, but there is still so much about Mary Shelley that I couldn't include more about the public reception of Frankenstein and her other works, more about her relationships and the drama within her various circles of friends, not to mention all there is to talk about the content uh, uh, in regards to the content of her work and the various interpretations of her work. Some more bizarre than others. Yeah. There is a lot of information about her out there. It's like I've said, and I'll keep saying it, keep your journals. <laughs> The reason we know so many details about all the juicy drama between Mary and every person in her life is because of her diaries and every single letter that she and all her writer friends kept forever. Her life is surrounded by a gold mine of information because she kept her journals. Like, she is the perfect ex example of why I say that. Yeah. The reason it took me so long to write this script was literally because there was so much information out there. There were a couple of points that I had to dig a bit to separate fact from fiction. But some of those had been kind of intentionally ignored by history. So it wasn't that the information is, isn't there. It's just it takes longer to track it down. Uh, a lot of the information from like for this script, I got from one specific biography about her that was published in 1886. So only a few years after her death. And it's, it really feels like a love letter to Mary Shelley. Like the way that the author just gushes about her is so delightful. Um, <laughs> And it goes into every detail of every drama. It includes the letters back and forth. It includes, like, it's just, it contains so much. Um, so definitely 10 out of 10 do recommend. Uh, I'll make sure that it's in the top of my sources list. Okay. Go check that out. If you're looking for a good read, it is free to read. Like, the entire thing is on Google Books. It's entirely free to read. So, yeah, that is the whole life story of Mary Shelley, as much as I can fit. <laughs> Now I'm, like, wanting to go read that book just to see the drama. There's so much. There's so much. There's so much petty, like, back and forth. Like, just, there's so much. 
Like an really 1800s Gossip Girl episode. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> it's all about well, and it'll like, but it'll add in like the slyest little digs as well. Like it was like, um, like I can't think word for word what the example was, but it was it was things like. Well, you know, she was with him, but then he also, you know, had a child by her. So, you know, and just like moved on. It's like, I'm sorry, what? Like, <laughs> no, it's really good. By Helen Moore. Was Helen like in the inner circle? I don't believe so. Her name wasn't ever mentioned. And like I said, oh. it was published in 1886. Mary Shelley Math died in 1851. So she would have been. Yeah. Then like no. it was like 35 years after her death and she would have been like 50-something, 54, um, when Maybe she passed like away. Maybe the kid of one of the inner circle then. Yeah, I don't really think so. I don't think the yeah timing of that would have matched up. But it was someone who had like all the documents, and they talked about interviewing people that knew her, yeah. um, like interviewing people in Scotland that met her and like uh, met her and Percy and what they had to say about him. So, yeah, so I don't think that they knew her personally. But it is good investigative work into her life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's one chapter where she starts it off by just going on and on and on about what Percy and uh, Mary meant to each other when they first got married and like how all the stars aligned for them to be the perfect couple. And she goes on f- about this for like three pages. Like, <laughs> it's very, very sweet. But yeah. Mary Shelley, are you still feeling? <laughs> I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, so should we go to the next horror author? Yeah. Okay. 
So, Bram Stoker, he's an interesting guy in general as well, um, not just because of his amazing career in writing gothic horror novels that would become, like, absolute classics in our modern era, but, like, other stuff as well. Um, he was born on November 8th, 1847, in Dublin, Ireland, and he was actually born disabled. Oh, okay. Um, he couldn't stand or walk until the age of seven, so he spent a lot of time in bed listening to his mother tell him dis- different Irish folklore and horror stories. Then he underwent a lot of bloodletting as doctors tried to keep him alive. Like, he was apparently, like, pretty much, like, like, Mm -hmm. there's some points where they thought that he wasn't even going to make it. Kind of a thing. Now, we have to remember that this is when the medical system thought that we had four liquids in our bodies called humors that created slash were the solution to all medical woes. Right. So bloodletting would be done in different areas depending on the patient's complaints in order to balance out those four liquids, of which blood was one of them. For example, if you had a headache, the doctor would make a cut behind your ears in order to cure it. <laughs> Did this work or like... <laughs> like, no. I don't know. I'm going to guess that maybe some, for some people it did kind of work. That's got to be a placebo effect, if anything. Yeah, but while we might think that it sounds like fairly barbaric, it actually did lead to the idea of blood transfusions and experiments that made it safe to do blood transfusions, saving countless lives both in the past and the present. It's the butterfly butterfly effect of uh, medical history. It's Medical history is a wild ride. It really is. Especially since, as Bram grew, his illnesses slowly disappeared. It's still unknown what he suffered with, but he survived and ended up thriving by the time he started attending Trinity College in 1864. So, so he was born, but then he grew out of it? Yeah, like, somehow, like, he was, like, growing out of whatever ailed him that he literally couldn't stand or walk until he was seven years old and was constantly getting bloodletting like stuff to try to save his life basically and we don't have any idea what this could have been what if he was like like what if it's like some super rare disease that there's like a one in a billion chance of getting and he just like that's so what wild yeah so when he was attending trinity college he earned a degree in mathematics and was a star on their football team now, when I say football, I am literally referring to soccer, but I'm going to call it by its European name as, firstly, it makes more sense to call soccer football than <laughs> what we know North Americans see as football. Yeah. And secondly, because that's how Bram would have known it. So. Fair enough. Um, he was so, also... hang on. So he recovered, not only did he recover, but he recovered well enough to be a part of the football team. And he was also winning awards left, right, and center in athletics, or what we call track and field in North America, while also getting top honors in his studies. Okay, did my guy make a deal with the devil? I was like, <laughs> how the fuck did this happen? How, did, how do you make such a 180 recovery like that? That's crazy. Like, literally, who the heck knows? But he somehow did. Brasso sold his soul. Like, I don't... Um, while at college, Bram undertook a role as a civil servant at Dublin Castle for 10 years. Civil service was a huge deal at this time. Early civil servants were literally servants to the king, 
Um, but as many monarch rules started to decline, the position turned more governmental in nature. Mm-hmm. Many senior silver, civil servants had huge influence over policies. If we want to think of it in like North American standards, our civil servants work for like the political parties and usually turn over when new leaders are elected. So like these people can range from appointed governors to those staffed in the parliament buildings or the White House. Being a civil servant meant that Bram could make many influential contacts, including his soon-to-be new boss. Um, It was during his tenure as a civil servant that Bram met his acting idol, Sir Henry Irving. As he transitioned jobs, his first book was published, The Duties of of Clerks in Petty Sessions in Ireland. It literally was like a manual for how to do the job and actually sparked interest in the position that caused a rapid expansion of the career itself. You're looking up Sir Henry Irving, aren't you? I am. I absolutely am. That sounds familiar. It sounded familiar. I thought I maybe recognized it from the Macbeth episode. And if he was one of the actors that like, was he? He might have been because he did a lot of Shakespeare plays. That we are going to kind of-ish come up to? I Yeah, I vaguely was taking part in a performance on tour in Bradford when he suffered a stroke. What was he performing? What was he performing? I need to know. <laughs> Did he die during Macbeth? I don't think he died during Macbeth. No, no. okay. Um, okay, but as a star, but the starstruck young man <laughs> couldn't resist a job as Irving's personal assistant. He did play in in Macbeth, but he didn't die in that run. Okay, okay, sorry. I just, yeah. (laughs) I just, I thought I recognized her from that episode, so I was going to lose my mind if there was a second connection to a past episode already. Sorry, continue. (laughs) Um, So, like our dear friend Alexander Hamilton, Bram wrote a great deal of letters on Irving's behalf while also doing his own short story writing and working for a paper writing theater reviews. This paper was edited and co-owned by the one and only Sheridan Le Fanu. If you don't know Sheridan's name, then I'm very disappointed in many of you. Sheridan Le Fanu wrote the most amazing piece of vampire literature that has ever graced the literary world. Carmilla. It's a short, thin oh. novel, but it's packed full of lesbian vampires and sass that we wouldn't normally expect in an 1872 published novel. Interesting. Yeah. Did they turn it? They turned it into a TV series. They turned it into a um, YouTube short series. It's a Canadian um, done one, and it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So in 1878, Bram was offered a position managing Irving's newest pursuit. Irving became the new owner of the Lyceum Theater, aka the current home of the West End production of Disney's The Lion King since 1999. <laughs> the theater itself has like a rich history but like it, at this point it did a lot of Shakespeare plays and then it mm-hmm. actually ended up burning down at one point and having to be rebuilt but at the like it like when Brown was there it just kept running as Shakespeare plays the position meant a move to London which Bram didn't hesitate to do alongside his new bride Florence Ann Lemon Balcombe Florence was considered to be the most beautiful woman in Dublin, but I actually remember her as the woman who fought Nosferatu and won. Nice. 
As Kat knows, I have a major fondness for legal battles, and this was a battle that rocked the publishing slash film industry world as she fought for about three years in court to get the money she deserved for the film. In short, um, a German film team released the film based on Dracula in 1922 without getting copyright permissions. Um, (sighs) So Florence was Bram's literary executor and struggling financially by this time in her life. So she was not going to let this slide and rightfully so. By summer of 1925, she won the ruling and the filmmakers had to hand over all copies or destroy them. (laughs) Unfortunately for Florence, this was not fully met, and the film started to be screened in America by the late 1929. What? So that first... Okay, so when we were talking about, like, the history of, like, horror films and stuff, that first Dracula, that was copyright infringement? Yes. Oh, my word! (laughs) What? Yeah. How did that never come up? I don't, like, what? Well, I wasn't going to bring it up when I had it coming up in this episode. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. But I also, like, not in my research anywhere did anyone mention that, like, I mean, I guess they were focused on different things, like, focused on the impact on the genre. Well, so this was Nosferatu. Like, this was, like, the silent film Nosferatu that was based, yeah, 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 that was, like, literally based off of it. Then the next Dracula... Uh, so like the film of Dracula and then the play production, like the play musical productions of Dracula were correctly okay. <laughs> made. Um, but they actually asked for permission, got permission, because she's like, yes, right. thank you, because now I'm actually getting paid from part of this. Thank you very much. Like, I kind of need to be able to, I don't know, live. <laughs> um, so Florence outlived her husband by 25 years, passing away in 1937 at the age of 78, survived mm-hmm. by their only son, Irving Noel Thornley Stoker. Irving Noel Thornley Stoker. That is a lot of names. <laughs> well, considering his mother's name was Florence Ann Lemon Balcombe. <laughs> Lemon? Yes, Lemon is part of her name. <laughs> but I, he's also okay. named after his dad's idol. Okay. Which I think oh, is okay, super fair. sweet. Yeah, um, that's fair. Especially because Irving was born like just after they moved to London to run the theater. Okay, that's cool. So the Lyceum Theater job, uh, one that he held until 1904, was extremely lucrative for the author. Bram met anyone who was anyone during this time. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Mark Twain, Theodore Roosevelt, just to name a few. Wow, holy. The Library Archive in Leeds holds... 3,411 letters of Brahms where he writes to his fellow literary counterparts and politician friends about his ideas and inputs on their work and the parliamentary debates which he was trained in since his college years. He literally had a hand in pretty much everything possible. Wow. Imagine, like, I just, I can't, okay, first of all, that's a lot of letters. Like, that's so many. And second of all, like, those are some big names, and they're, like, not, like, geographically, they're all fairly, like, All over the place, Like, yeah. that's, that's a lot of influence for one, for one guy, like. And one guy who, like, pretty much almost died, that? like, he shouldn't even be alive. He's just, he's just a guy, like. Uh, okay. Okay. So, let's jump to the piece of literary work that everybody is here for, The Tale of Dracula. 
Bram started writing his masterpiece in 1890, and it was finally published in 1897, where it has never gone out of print since. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, It also, so like the first theater production kind of of Dracula happened at the Lyceum Theater where he was working. That he was that he would apparently be like everywhere in the theater. So like there's points where people would actually see him where he would be helping to push out like a boat or whatever. Um and be like, Oh my god, that's the author of the book that we're now watching the play of and stuff. And like even though he'd be like an all black and like and like not but they show him. There'd be like a huge cheer for him coming on to push the prop onto the stage. That's hilarious. He's like, yeah, I'm this big famous author, but like also stagehand though. Yeah. Like, like a manager, stagehand, like <laughs> political advisor. <laughs> political advisor. That's what an interesting, like, I, how do you, like, that resume is like all so all over the place. <laughs> like, yeah. So, Dracula was only one of Bram's 18 novels that he published, but it's the only one that really gained any traction in popular culture. Mm. And I'd like to say that I can understand why. Dracula is not fully a piece of fictional work. There is some truth to it buried deep under that vampire lore and the insane version of a love story. In order to understand this part, we need to understand Bram's research for this novel. He seemed to be set on a vampire story from the beginning, likely due to the myths and legends that his mom would tell him at his bedside while he's literally basically being treated like a vampire victim. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. Um, Real historical people also likely cemented the idea in his head, notably the tale of Vlad the Impaler, who is the most common source cited as Bram's inspiration. Yeah, uh, But another historical figure who I have talked about a couple of times in passing also likely inspired the man. Lady Bathory, also known as the Blood Countess. There's also countless tales of vampire folklore, but I don't want to dive in too deep as I'm holding that information for another podcast episode where I can nerd out on vampires for much, much longer. Yes. These stories and people aside, Bram is said to have been directed to a particular book by a friend of his. The Account of Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia by William Wilkinson, published in 1820 and available to read on Project Gutenberg. One One could only get their hands on this book if they specifically asked the librarians at the subscription library in Whitby for it. Bram did so and apparently opened it to an exact page, took some notes, and handed it back flabbergasting the librarians as they had never had anyone that quick with this particular tome. Interesting. After his Also, shout out to Project Gutenberg for coming in clutch oh, once Project again. Oh, Project Gutenberg is, like, amazing. <laughs> the best. So after his stop at the library, Bram then headed to the museum, where he poured over maps to trace out a route from London to a certain spot in the middle of the wild mountains of Romania. This exact spot is the location of the real castle that Vlad the Impaler lived in, allegedly cursing the Romanian town that it sits above. One thing to note is that Wallachia and Moldavia were integrated to become Romania in 1877. 
This castle okay. was built in the 1400s when that area that it stands on was part of the Wallachia Wilds. Okay. Brown didn't stop his research at the library museum that day. Once he had what he needed, he moved on to the docks of Whitby where he spoke to sailors, learning more details about a ship that ran aground a few years prior. This ship was called the Dimitri and had originated from a port in, what, in Eastern Europe. It carried some weird cargo, just plain old crates of earth. That was it. That's all it had was dirt. just crates of dirt. dirt. But that wasn't the part that Bram was most interested in. He okay. wanted to know about the sighting of a bargeist at the time of the crash. Bargeists, which translates roughly to town ghost, are seen as bl- giant black dogs with matted fur and extremely sharp teeth slash claws. The legend around them claims that they can foretell someone's death by laying across their threshold. If one clearly sees the dog, they are di- said to die soon after. If one only catches a glimpse, then they will live a few months longer, but are still considered doomed. Oh, that's so creepy. This particular dog was said to run straight to the graveyard of the nearest abbey. Anyone who has read Dracula will recognize the dog, the abbey, the root, and even the shipwreck, though it has a different name in the book, Demeter rather than Dimitri, bringing in some Greek goddess reference that matches the culture of the Wallachian region. So cool. Wait. But the last question remains. like... What information did Brown get from that secret book? There is a lot of speculation as to where the name Dracula came from, and I actually believe it came from this book. There is a passage in the end of the book that talks about the Wallachian language, and the term Dracula is mentioned, as it relates to the name Vlad the Impaler was given. It states that Dracula means devil and would be given as a surname to those who are cunning and cruel. Before this point of his research, Dracula's name was actually to be Count um, Wampier, lately pronounced as Vampire, but I wanted to pronounce it as written to show the stupidity of how it looks on paper through this um, audio format. Yeah, Wampier. Terrifying Count (laughs) Wampier. Like as I said, it's probably pronounced Vampire because I think that like W's are usually pronounced as V's, but I'm like. The, 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 just the, the way that it's actually spelt is just like so stupid. It's like a derby vampire. Wampier. Yeah. So Thank fun. goodness so that this name was changed. As Honestly, I don't think I would be able to take the vampire seriously with that name. Wampier. Yeah, no, Dracula is so much better. Yeah. Okay. Once Bram finished his book, it was sent to his editor, who at first said... Absolutely not. You see, this wasn't actually meant to be a piece of fiction. Bram actually wanted it to be as real as possible so that readers would be warned about the real evil lurking in the world, that their childhood nightmares were literal. And there's actually like a quote from Bram basically saying, like, like, like in, his, yeah. in some of in like his original um, like uh, re- like author's note, it's literally mm-hmm. saying that to him these events are completely and utterly real so he like so rather than doing research as like a fiction writer he was like investigating and like trying to figure like follow the path of the vampire and then he wrote like he genuinely yeah 
Like, he thought vampires were real. Yeah. Fascinating. So, let me put this into the editor's perspective for a moment by going back to 1888, two years prior to the start of Bram's writing of his manuscript. Whitechapel and the rest of England were under a siege of terror as an unknown person roamed the streets, murdering at least five victims. Yes, I am talking about the infamous Jack the Ripper. This terror was still going fairly strong when Bram took his original manuscript to his editor's office. As far as the public knew, the serial killer was still out there and possibly continuing his murder spree just outside of the view of everyone. So Dracula could re-spark the, pa- the mass panic that was still trying to, like, dying down. It had to be published as fiction with a lot of edits, or it wouldn't be published at all. Yeah, because, like, that's, there, especially with some of the deaths in Dracula, like, that's just a little too close. Like, that's, like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. That's a, I think that's probably a good decision on the editor's part. I think that probably would not have gone over very well. It would have been a very different story if they had tried to release it like it was like an investigative journalist yeah. sort of thing rather than completely fictional. Like, yeah. <laughs> so let's fast Pretty forward. Pretty sure we would have had a vampire hunt. <laughs> let's fast forward to 1980, a barn in rural Pennsylvania to be exact. This is where the original manuscript was ultimately found. No one knows how it got here, but it is now in the hands of Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. Freaking Microsoft. So, okay, <laughs> so hang on. So, so hold up. So, he, Bram didn't own the barn. No. Like, it wasn't his property? He never went to America, like, like that we know of. No. Like, with the manuscript, yeah. So, like, none of his family, though? Like, no one knows. How the frick did it get there then? <laughs> As I said, like, literally no one knows. That's so weird. But that's not what's interesting to note. What is interesting to note is that the manuscript starts on page 102. So what happened to the first part of the manuscript? This means that what we collectively know as the beginning of Dracula is literally the midway point. How much more was So what happened to those first 101 pages, we won't ever know. But Bram did leave some clues in a short story as well as in the preface for the Icelandic first edition of Dracula. Oh. So in the preface, Bram states that he is under the absolute impression that the events of this book really took place. He also makes a mention that the characters, however fictional they may seem, were possibly real people. Interesting. Both, so, like, uh, here's this quote. Mm -hmm. Both Jonathan Harker and his wife, who is a woman of character, and Dr. Seward are my friends and have been so for many years, and I have never doubted that they were telling the truth. Mm, Oh, my, oh, my. Okay, so, um, it reminds me of, like, Exorcist and Blair Witch Project, where they, uh, were... Um, the PR around them was that they were a true story or based on a true story. Like Exorcist says that it's based on a true story. Um, and Blair Witch Project was literally marketed as being true. And that was like part of all the hype around it, right? Was that people thought that it was genuinely found footage and that like it was like legit. The actor like faked her death for a while. Like it like it was intense, right? So this this very much reminds me of that. But like if they actually believed it, like that's like... 
that's so like no wonder it hits different like I just yeah yeah well and like I think that like um it gets really hard because it's like there's no evidence that we can find of them being real people right because every time you try to search them up it's all you get Dracula because that's all we've really known right um so the question Mm -hmm. like literally is like are these characters real people or did Bram just think that they were real because of how much time they spent together in his head Mm. right interesting see if those people were real people if they had kept their journals then we would know for sure well or was it that they thought that maybe this book was going to be their journal or were they real people but were they like did he give them a different name yeah because I'm like, I could see, I could see it being also like, like that he just thinks that they're real because of how much time they spent together. Because mm-hmm. he was researching this for and writing it for quite a long time, and then had to do the edits and stuff, right? And I know, right. like for me, like when I'm trying to write, I usually will just get characters that pop up in my head and stuff, right? And then I'm like, okay, well, what are they trying to tell me in my head? And then I'll get it out on paper. To make yeah. it feel as authentic as possible, right? Like, okay, I'll treat them as real people to see what are they trying to tell me. Yeah. Right? So it's like, did he, like, then literally... Did he... They, they maybe the real people, own. right? Like, his imaginary <laughs> friends were real, right? Like, yeah. who knows? So was he too far in his own head? Or was there some kind of truth to what he was saying? Yeah. Fascinating. So the next clue that I mentioned may come in the short story that Florence published after Bram's death. Her preface to the story compilation that includes this particular segment states that it is a section of Dracula that never got to see the light of day due to the original manuscript cuts. Okay. So Dracula's guest accounts for Harker's travels through Germany as he stumbled upon a grave that seemingly comes to life and specters attempt to kill him. He awakes to men who find him being guarded by a large dog or wolf. None of the characters seem able to distinguish which one the animal was. As he's like, no, it's a large dog. And they're like, no, it's clearly a wolf. Um, <laughs> like, no one can seem to do it. Um, and then they produce a note from Dracula himself, imploring them to make sure that Harker is safe during his travels. The grave which attacks Harker is none other than one for a German countess, possibly an extra character, like, literally based on Bathory. Interesting. Um, readers of this story can't seem to determine if the countess was trying to save Harker from Dracula or take Harker's life for themselves. Interesting. Okay. So this wasn't part of the original manuscript. This is... Well, this is... So, so this was maybe in the first hundred pages. Yes, because... Like a part of it. Because, like, what we... Like, like when we start off, Jonathan's already, like, midway of travels. Yeah. So there's another, like, hundred so pages of him, of like how he started to get on these travels the thing that actually sparked it and then getting and then a pile of his travels up to the point that we see so right. there's thought that maybe this is one of the like this is part of that original 101 pages that are now missing Interesting. um others though aren't sure if it's really from dracula or if it's a writing exercise of brams in order to get the tone right for the book but at that point, when a lot of people were thinking that, um, we didn't know that there was 101 pages missing. 
So yeah, now right? the general consensus is, okay, this might be part of that 101 pages, while other people are like, is it really from it? Because, like, it doesn't seem to fit. Where it's like, well, no, because it's <laughs> at the beginning, possibly. Like cut out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, no, that does make sense. So, like, yeah, no, I mean, huh. I really want to know what's in the 101 pages now. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering, because, like, no one seems to know where these 101 pages are um i'm almost wondering if they were like literally destroyed Mm. um because the publisher was like no like we absolutely cannot be using this yeah what was in it that made it so bad like i well then there's like other cuts that happen like in like the rest of the book as well right so it's like okay well what was it that he was warning people about at this point like that interesting like i'm so curious as to like what dracula would have been like it's already such a classic but i'm like it might have even been like even more of a a freaking epic yeah (laughs) interesting this is this is we talk about this every now and then this is one of those moments that i'm like i really wish that we had a time machine and we could just back into time and just right know one of the things one of the mysteries that we've the answer is lost to history yeah but unfortunately, Bram wow. passed away, so <laughs> we don't get to know. He was not a vampire himself, and he was not immortal and did not live forever, so. Yeah, no. Unfortunately, yeah, he had, like, a number of strokes and passed Ooh. away in London on the 20th of April, 1912. Mm. Some biographers say that it's the cause of death of overwork. So he was... He was burnt out. Yeah, um, but others oh, no. um, say that it's probably tetrary syphilis, which I'm like, that makes sense. Tetrary syphilis. Like, yeah. So syphilis is a bacterial infection usually spread by sexual contact. Oh, okay. At least in, like, today's knowledge, it's that's how it's spread. Right. So, like, like a bloodborne kind of, like, STD. STDs are usually uh, transmittable through blood as well as through sex. Yeah. So I... You don't think that he was, like, drinking people's blood, do you? Who the heck knows? Okay. All right. Um, but, I mean... Because I know, I know it was a theory for a while that, like, part of the idea behind vampires, and I'm sure you'll talk about this more in the vampire episode, is that um, uh, part of the idea was that's where they get their immortality from, and that's why they're young forever, is because they drink the young blood so that it yeah. cycles out. The old blood goes away and the young blood stays behind. And so that's what makes you young forever. Um, so I just, if I, 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 I'm a little bit curious if Bram was maybe drinking his own Kool-Aid a little bit and like, was, was like drinking other people's blood. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Probably if not. I think he probably mm-hmm. easily got sick. Like he probably yeah. just, was yeah, like had like a really low immune system still, right? Like after being so sick as a kid. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if he just, it just like any like anybody who might have gotten con, like gotten syphilis and then he had contact with them because he had contact with a lot of people in the True. theater world, especially where we know at this time that there was a lot of undercover um, LGBTQ plus members, right? Right. So he might have just had like sm- like small contact with somebody, and because of how his immune system was, would have contracted it super quick and easily. Right. Yeah. I suppose that's a more reasonable answer than 
She yeah. thought he was a vampire. <laughs> but knowing what we know about him, it, 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 it's not that far out of the realm of <laughs> possibility. I don't know. But yeah. 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 That's the story of Bram and Dracula. Yeah. Or what wow. we know of Dracula. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Interesting. Makes me want to read the story again and like guess at what the first 101 <laughs> pages would have been the entire way. <laughs> right. Like what pieces are we missing that there could have been like more of? Like Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Alright. So yeah, that's week two of spooky season. Yay. And then next week, we're going to go into two different parts of the Satanic Panic from the 70s and 80s. Yes. I'm super excited. <laughs> yes, it, it'll be good. The Satanic Panic was an interesting and wild time socially, so it'll be very interesting. They're two very different sides of it, but it's inter- it'll be interesting to see how they kind of play together. Yeah. Well, I think, because yeah, you're talking about daycares, which kind of started off the panic a bit more. Yeah. And then I get to go, and I get to nerd out even more <laughs> and talk about D&D. Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to kind of see like yeah. where it started and then kind of where it got to. <laughs> yeah. And where it is today. Yeah. It'll be good. Be good times. Yeah. All right. Thanks All right. for listening, everybody. And yeah, keep it spooky and all that on your side of the rabbit hole. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope that you found something new and will check out the resources in the show notes to get more information. In the meantime, I would really appreciate it if you could rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so more history nerds can find me. Don't forget to check out our Instagram page at WDYKA Podcast, as well as considering helping me out with a donation or membership on Buy Me a Coffee. The link is in the show notes and on our IG link tree. Thanks so much, and see you next time on the lesser known side of history. <laughs>